Hey folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 546. It is Monday, November the 8th, 2010. And this is, again, episode 546 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's a Monday and we're back into our normal routine, I will be taking your questions today that came in over the last week or two by email. I want to tell you this. Um, I often say that I don't get to answer all your emails, and it's true. <clears throat> and I often say that um, I read them all, and I don't respond to them all, but I read them all, and that's true. Um, and I often say that like, if you send me an email, maybe I'll eventually get to it. I get you know, kind of a stack up, and I go back through and cleanse, but... With some of the things that happened in the last week with uh, with my buddy and, and stuff like that, um, if you haven't heard the show, I did last Monday, I skipped this episode, and I did a show in, in honor of him, his name is Hal Dodd, and uh, he died at 41. And uh, with that, <clears throat> I kind of threw everything out of whack. So if you've sent me an email, and you haven't got an answer on the show yet, and you'd really like an answer, I'm going to suggest that you resend that email if you don't hear it today. Okay, um, just to kind of get yourself back in the queue because I had a little hiccup there uh, in the middle. And I apologize for that. I'll also tell you this. If you send me an email and uh, within about two or three weeks you don't hear an answer on the show, send me it again. I am like the Army. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. Sometimes I skip a question. Sometimes I want to do it. It gets dropped. In, so don't be afraid to email me more than once. Do not email me your question three times a day for a week or I will put block your email list. Uh, but other than that, send me your questions, comments, concerns, anything like that. Best way to make sure I read it for this show is put question for Jack in the subject line. Even if it's a link to an article or something, I'll try to get you on the air. Understand, I get about 800 to 1,000 show-related emails a day. I do my best. I respond to most. Um, the question stuff, I generally don't give you an answer uh, by email. I put them aside for the show. Uh, but other than that, I usually try to at least say, hey, thank you for your compliment or whatever. Just wanted to clear that up. Let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping and get into our show. And let's start that out with sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask from a company than they say, Here's our, here we are, this is our name, and our name is what we do and how we deliver it to you. That's what Ready Made Resources is all about. All the resources you need for your homesteading, your survival planning, your prepping, ready made, ready to go to be delivered to you. You just drop by their website, pick out the items you want, ship them straight to your door. Incredible selection, great deals, great values, always adding something new. Check out ready-made resources. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals, to me, is the ultimate source for everything herbal. If you want something prepared for you uh, to help starve, you know, stave off the cool, the cold in a flu season, uh, you know, they have stuff like their anti-plague uh, uh, remedy, which works really good. Tastes good. I don't know. Doctor Christensen said he thinks it tastes good for a marinade on meat. Uh, I don't think so, uh, but works absolutely works. Uh, but if you want to put together your own stuff, for instance, they have every herb that you can conceive of that's available. You can get it there. In whole herb form, and you can also get some interesting things that are hard to find elsewhere, like uh, these 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 menthol crystals they have for liniments and rubs that are just almost impossible to find anywhere else. Check out Western Botanicals, and if you have any questions, pick the phone up, give them a ring, and remember they support the Member Support Brigade. If you uh, phone them up and give them the code that's in your Member Support Brigade area, they will set you up with a free preferred membership, 25% off everything you ever order from them, and uh, that would cost you 50 bucks if you bought it from them. They'll give it to you for free as an MSB member. Uh, next up, remember, check out our gear shop. We have some interesting new stuff there. Uh, we've got the, uh, the first aid bags. Our survival tracker knives are sold out. We told you they were limited edition. We also have some new steel water bottles and uh, some new stuff coming. The AOCS Copper, I've had a lot of questions about those. Uh, we should be taking pre-orders for them probably by the end of the week, as soon as I get a reasonably firm delivery date so that I can make sure that we're telling you when you can expect to receive them. We'll take pre-orders on them. The design is finalized on them, and people are really excited about those. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Discounts. You, free ebooks, extra videos, good stuff, 
Great deal. Support the show. 20 cents an episode. Done. All right, let's get into today's show. Okay, our first email today comes from Tom. Tom says, uh, Jack, uh, I've been hearing a lot about corporate insiders dumping their stock lately. It's like a thousand to one ratio of uh, corporate insiders, heads of companies like Apple and, and large companies that are selling their stocks and uh, you know not buying back their stock. They're basically dumping their stocks at a thousand to one ratio. And uh, that looks like a sign that the stock market's headed for a big crash. What do you think? Um, it's interesting. that That's kind of an older email that, that came uh, a few weeks ago. And then just a couple days ago, there's big news out about the CEO of uh, Microsoft, uh, Michael Ballmer, and, or Steve Ballmer, I'm sorry. And uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, again, uh, Microsoft CEO, has just sold $1.3 billion of Microsoft stock. $1.3 Billion, and I've read other reports that uh, Michael Bomber plans. Why do I keep saying Michael? Steve Bomber plans to sell as much as two billion dollars worth of his Microsoft stock before the end of the year. And of course, when people see this, and any public company, when a big time uh, player in the company, an insider that holds a lot of stock in his own company, starts selling it, it has to be publicly disclosed. So if the president of XYZ Corp sells a hundred thousand or a hundred million dollars uh, worth of stock, either way, we have to be told because that's part of protecting the public investor. You have a right to know what the president, the CEO, the chairman of the board, etc., is doing with the same stock you're holding. If they're selling it, maybe you'd want to sell it. So this has been touted recently as the stock market is about to go off the deep end. It's about to crash into oblivion. We've had a nice run up. Uh, by the way, I have now beat out uh, Mike Gazer's prediction that, uh, that the 11.2 number uh, from earlier in the year was the high point of the stock market. We have hit 11.4. I'm saying we're going to go higher before this run ends. Um, it might come down, but it'll go back up before it goes off the deep end. But a lot of people are saying that this this insider dumping is an indication that you know this 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 drop is coming. I don't see it that way. And you might say, well, that's pretty damning evidence. How do you see it, Jack? I see it this way: the Bush tax cuts are set to expire. One of the biggest jackups there is going to be the capital gains rate. And uh, right now, if you can get a billion dollars or two billion dollars out of your company and pay a lower tax on it than you will next year, it's kind of smart to take the money out now. So what you're seeing is because of increased taxation, you're seeing big company owners take money out of their company. What are they going to do with that money? Uh, my guess would be that they're going to invest it in creative ways that will allow them to profit with it and not pay these these higher taxes. If you know, the markets always seem to fall a little bit at the end of the year, so you pull your money out now, you pay the initial taxes on it, but you've safeguarded yourself. You put the money aside, you get it ready to go dump it into a place like China with some type of way where you get a loophole and you don't pay income tax on it. You wait. If they extend the tax cuts, you let the stock fall at the end of the year like they always seem to do. You put your money back into your own stock, you buy your own stock back. Right, and then you, you've you've kept your options open. You bought back at a discount. You probably will look at the stock falling enough to almost break even on the taxes you paid because capital gains are so low right now, and because you your dumping is going to have an effect. You know what's going to have an effect when anybody sells a billion dollars of their own company. People go, "What's going on?" If the tax cuts get ex don't get extended. If it's an inhospitable uh, market for business in America, you freed up your money at the lower tax rate and you can go elsewhere. So I don't see this really as an indicator uh, of exactly what's going to happen. I see this as an indicator of people that have like a billion dollars or more are smart and they pay attention to what's going on and they prepare themselves to be able to play the odds on either side. So that's how I took that one. Um, I'll tell you why I think we are going to see it go up in a bit. Uh, but let's go ahead and take another question before I do that. Next question comes from a guy named Ted. Ted says, uh, how do you talk to a proclaimed socialist about prepping and little l libertarianism? And for those that don't know what little l libertarianism is, there's a party, libertarian party. Great big capital L at the beginning of it, like Democrat or Republican. And then there's people that identify themselves as libertarians. They don't necessarily mean they're attached to the libertarian party. They may even support it to a degree, but what they mean is, when I go and I look at any election, I look, I look for the person that's the most libertarian candidate. Post I made on Facebook, by the way, that was completely misunderstood about that. And 
what that means is the ideals of libertarianism. So if I have a highly libertarian person that calls themselves a Republican, like Ron Paul, and I can vote for him, I can't unfortunately, I would give him my vote. Libertarianism is about the concept and the ideals of liberty versus allegiance to the party. So he wants to know, now he says more details. I've been carpooling with a co-worker, co-worker, and while we had our cars in the shop, she noticed that I was reading Atlas Shrugged and commented about, and made a comment about good literature, but Ann Rand is used as a conservative figurehead. Assuming a Democrat, I, uh, soft sell into libertarian views when she said she was a socialist. I was stunned with a lack of response or, or self, self realizing Political Euler diagrams do not overlap. We agreed that we would politely discuss our views. I try to talk to her into reading Atlas Shrugged with the argument, it's good literature, it will refine and hone your beliefs by challenging them. I agreed to watch Capitalism, a love story, which I did and we discussed in my disagreements. I do not think her beliefs are deep-rooted, more influenced by Mike Moore and her boyfriend being out. So he goes on with it, but how do you talk to so somebody says, I'm a socialist? Well, Here's the thing, how you talked about anybody that, that, that creates an ideology that trumps their viewpoint is you have to ask them why. What do you want in our society? What do you want our society to be? And if that person's response is, I want everybody to be completely equal, I don't want people that, 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 that work really hard to have more than people that don't, I want everybody to just have everything they need, stop wasting your time. Right? If that's the goal... Okay, then you are with an ideologue that you cannot help. You just can't. Because that is, that is a nonsensical world that cannot exist, and that's like them saying, well, I'm voting for, uh, Democrats because I want to make sure Republicans don't take away my Social Security. In fact, it's worse than that. Because that actually could happen. It's probably not going to, but it could happen. That's like somebody saying, well, I'm voting for Obama because I want everybody in the United States to be able to start walking on water. It ain't gonna happen. It can't happen. It's, it's, it's impossible to have a society that's well run and well ordered and productive where everybody's just taken care of. Because it pulls productivity out. But more likely what you're like to hear is I don't want to see, you know, a, a world where, you know, people can't get ahead. Uh, well, why don't you think people can get ahead the way things are today? And there are reasons that hold people back. But let her tell you what you think and challenge each reason. So this is you don't tell people how to think if you're a good educator. Instead, you ask them questions and you challenge their ideas and you make them step through their own maze. Because the maze of socialism will lead you to a a, 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 a fundamental reality. It cannot work. It doesn't work. It's not going to work, and it's never going to work. On any large scale. And people will point to like Scandinavia and all. Don't think that the world there is just perfect. And also understand how much those nations benefit by the productivity of the rest of the world. And if every, every other nation in the world ran their society the way Scandinavia did, the whole thing would fall apart. So the only way a socialist society can work is for it to be parasitic. But if you tell somebody that's an about socialist that, they'll never believe you. You have to let them figure that out for themselves. I don't know if this is really the greatest question for the show, but I thought it was interesting. And it's more about, that's how you argue a point with anybody about anything. When you're not in a debate, you know, where you're trying to just hammer your points on like a political debate, when you're actually having an open discourse, the less talking you do, the more convincing you will become. That has to do with prepping, that has to do with debt, that has to do with anything. You know, well, I think debt is going to make me more successful. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, see, I can buy these things today and I'll have them now and I only have to pay this much money. But how much are they really going to cost? Well, they're going to, you know, this, this thing I'm buying is going to cost $32 a month. How many payments will you have to make? Right? Now, if I just know the answer and I say, look, dude, this is a $5,000 product. You're going to pay $11,500 for it. There's no snapback there. It's just like, so, right? But if I say, well, how many payments are you going to have to make? They haven't thought about it. And they go, I don't know. You go, well, why don't you find out? Wouldn't that be a good thing to know? How long you're going to have to pay on this thing to, to, to be out from underneath it? Well, the interest rate's 2.9%. Well, fine. But well, how many payments are you going to have to make at the minimum payment to pay this thing off? And then when they figure that number out, say, and how much is that going to cost you? You see, that's how, and then, and then you say, well, if you had that money right now, if you had, you know, $5,000, you could, you could pay cash for it, would you? And they'll say, 
probably they'll probably say, no, I, I would still finance it. And I'd say, well, if you won't pay $5,000 for it today, why would you pay $11,500 for it tomorrow? See, And this is how you have a debate with anybody, if you actually want to have a productive debate, is you ask these questions in, in a very fair way, you know, and be open-minded to the fact that sometimes the other side has a point. But usually, if you've really thought the position out, they have minor points, where there's an overriding right way to live if you want to be successful and prosperous. And, and history's proven this over and over again. Best I can do for you. Let's go ahead and take a totally different kind of question. Steve says, should I forgo a promotion at work because it would make my demanding job even more demanding and hurt my family's preparedness level? I'm a successful IT executive in a large company in a major city northeast. I'm in my late 30s. When I was younger, I was incredibly ambitious to climb the corporate ladder at all costs. Now I have a wife and two kids, and I value family life the most. I've become a prepper in my spare time. I force more find more personal fulfillment in my family and prepper life than I do in my job. At this very juncture in my career, I have a good opportunity to get a promotion at my company uh, to department head, which would take my current relatively high compensation and increase it by 33%. However, at my company, the department heads all work even harder than their employees, which is true in most places. Those of you who think that the boss has it so easy, by the way, they are on the hot seat and in demand from, uh, undemanded, more is demanded from them than anyone else in the company. And he goes on and talks about about all these different things, about how it would take away. Here, uh, in the end, I can't answer this question for you, Steve, because it's a personal choice. And you're giving up a significant increase in salary. If you make six figures, 33% is $30,000 a year. If you make $50,000, that's $15,000 a year. It's probably higher than fifty based on your, your comments and what you do. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen dollars to $30,000 a year that you're giving up. But here's how I would look at it. One, how many hours will it take from you? So if you work 60 hours now because it's a demanding job, are you going to work 70 or 80? If you're working 50 now, are you going to work 80 or 90? How many more hours will it take from you? And since you're salaried with this kind of number, generally, what is what is your cost per hour? And how much do you value the time you're spending at home right now? So if you're going to make $80 an hour, let's say, in this, this, this the, the extra portion, um, but you value your time at home at $100, you are not going to pay what you're worth. And that doesn't matter if it's $8, And $10 is the spread, or 80 and 100. Doesn't matter. If you value the time at more, you're not getting paid enough. The next thing you have to do is look at your tax consequences. Uh, you'll probably go into a higher tax bracket with a raise like that. When you do, it won't take all of your raise, that's for sure, but it may take half of it. So $30,000 may become $15. Is it really worth it? It may become $30, that may become $20. I don't know. You have to do the numbers and find those out. Know what you're really turning down, I guess this is important. Um, I can tell you this, in my career, I took more and more responsibility, I moved higher and higher in, in levels, I moved higher and higher in income, and on some levels, it was good because the capital that it paid me did a lot for us. But on the other side, the more I did like that, the more miserable as a human being I became. And I believe that I was on my way to coronary by mid-40s. If I hadn't pulled back, went into this lifestyle, started up this show, and decided enough of this crap, I don't want it anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do the same thing, but it means you have to decide how much of that you're willing to buy into. How much you're willing to dedicate yourself. How you know If you said, I'm going to take this job working for five years and quit, here's my financial exodus plan, I would say it probably makes sense to do. If, if, if doing it gets you there in five years and not doing it would take ten then maybe you're buying five years. And that's, that's you know, you're still going to have a life. You're not going to jail for five years. But if it doesn't result in an exodus acceleration for you, if that's what you want, don't do it. If it's going to take away... See, here's the thing. Your kids are young. This is like the greatest time in the world to be with them. It, it makes more sense to spend time with your family to me if you're even asking the question. In the end, you'll have to answer this for yourself, but I think it's something that a lot of people will have to answer for themselves. Um, the next question I have, I was talking about quantitative easing. A guy sent me an email, his name's Mike, and Mike says, what does this mean for us? And it's an article that says the Fed is going to buy $600 billion in treasury notes. I know this sounds like a very financially related show today, but hell, there's a lot of financial stuff going on today that we need to talk about and understand, and this is a big one. So, you know, the basic question is, yeah, what does this mean that for us, for me and you, 
for the average person. Let me first tell you what I said it means in my very short response to the email. I said, basically what it means is the false recovery is about to begin. Inflation is going to be kicked in uh, sometime early next year. Uh, they're going to think that everything's going wonderful. They're going to trumpet how this worked. Uh, the Republicans that have taken over Congress will take some credit for it. And we will get set up for the eventual runaway portion of inflation that will follow this uh, when the money lets loose. And that will lead us to the second crash, which will be much bigger than the first crash. To understand that and understand everything, though, we have to look at what what does the Fed buying another $600 billion in treasuries mean? What, what's actually happening here? I'm seeing a lot about this go on. Somebody sent me an email about this with a link to a YouTube video with the Young Turks talking about it. They brought these experts in. And, of course, all the YouTube commenters that, that would watch something like that in general, uh, the young people are saying, why don't they just give us the money? Why don't they just give the people the money? Uh, which would be you know, kind of what George Bush did with some of his attempts to kind of kickstart the economy uh, by giving tax rebates, including tax rebates to people that never paid taxes in the first place. That didn't work either. Because it's it's false. It's not real. There's no production behind it. But this is what I call a teachable moment. And a teachable moment to me isn't where I drop some bomb on you and you're like, wow, that's 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 interesting and you've learned something. To me, a teachable moment is where you learn what you've learned and you start to put things together for yourself. So I want you to think about what I've told you before when I did my shows about creating money. And the fact that the Federal Reserve, when they create money and put it into the banking systems, allow the banks to create more money through lending. Because when they lend money, they create new money, and they do it over and over and over again. So, now, answering the question for yourself, not whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, if your mind is the mind of Ben Bernanke and the Federal Reserve itself, and your goal is to stimulate the economy by creating inflation, controlled moderate inflation, to kind of kickstart things and get money flowing, why would you put the money into the banking system instead of giving it to consumers to spend? Why would you do one versus the other? And you should be able to draw your own answer now, which is really awesome if you can. And if you can, as soon as I say it, you'll probably be like, if you, at least if you've listened to my shows about creating money, you'll, you'll, you'll understand real quick. If I send the average American $800 in some kind of stimulus program, and they go out and buy a big TV with it or something, it kind of floats around in the economy. It may eventually end up in the banks. But it kind of just kind of floats out there, you know. You go spend it with Best Buy and buy the big TV. And a big piece of the profit of that was already dumped into China, right, who made the TV. So maybe I drop 800 bucks, but maybe 550 bucks of it is floating off to China and all the costs associated with getting it here. So now it's out of the economy. Now that 300 bucks or 350 bucks or 250 bucks is still floating around. Well, you know, it gets paid out in a wage to the guy that works at Best Buy. And then he spends it on beer and gas. And, you know, a lot of the money still kind of outflows. But it doesn't do a lot of procreating. If we put the money into the banks, and if we can get the banks to loan the money out, then it multiplies. So the Fed can put $600 billion in at the banking level, and if it trickles down right, it can become how much? Ten times its initial base rate, or $6 trillion. Now, the, the odds that it would become $6 trillion, even with the best of conditions, are not good. Because there's too much breakage on something that large. But let's say that it has a 50% success rate. So to get the same amount of money into the economy and get it flowing around with, with, you know, not even accounting for the leakage, I can put $600 billion into consumer hands or I can put $600 billion in the bank and I'm going to get a much greater return in circulation, therefore inflation. What you have to understand is that what we have been conditioned as a people to look at inflation and look at it negatively without realizing how many places we actually pray for it. You know, when you ask, when you pray for a raise, you're praying for inflation. That's the number one thing that drives raises in America today. Now, there's performance-based raises, but they usually come with promotions and things like that. When you don't get a new job, a new responsibility, new anything, and you just get a raise, it's inflation that drove that raise. Because inflation drives prices, so your employer is selling their products for a higher price. They can raise their prices. They increase their profit margin. So do their competitors because their competitors can now hire you for a higher wage. They pay you a portion of what maybe you could get on the free market and jack your price up and hope you'll stay to compete for you. 
That's inflation. When you pray for your stock market portfolio, 401k to go up, you go, please, God, let my, let my 401k go back up to where it was. Please, 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 I want to retire. You're praying for inflation. You don't even realize that. The government is praying for inflation. The Fed is praying for inflation. Inflation is how we keep growth in our economy. Now, I don't like inflation. I don't think it's a good thing, but the, the Keynesian does. right? The Federal Reserve does. Your president does. Your Congress does. Your senators do. They all want it. And they're all praying for it. Most Americans, without realizing it, are praying for it as well. They don't want the price of the individual thing to go up. Joe Sixpack doesn't want his six-pack of Miller Lite to go up, right? And the kid doesn't want the cost of his favorite new video games on average entry price into the market to go up. But it's a constant. But when it comes down to it, everybody that wants higher wages, higher stock market prices, everything is betting on inflation. Because that's the main driver that we have today. So now you can answer the question, why did they give the money to the banks? Why are they doing that versus give the money to the consumer To make more money. Now, here's the problem. The main thing that banks would do with this kind of money in loans, I mean, you don't loan somebody huge chunks of change to go out and buy TV sets, especially now. I mean, that credit card market has imploded worse than the real estate market, even though no one's talking about it. You loan people large chunks of change to buy property. That's the number one thing. Cars, so-so. You know, cars are fairly large purchases. Twenty to seventy thousand dollars average new car prices, but you know that market is, you know, it's it's high turnover. People don't hold the notes for long periods of time, five year, six year notes, and most people trade the car in every couple of years and recycle it. Uh, but a house, hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred million dollars. So this is designed to try to push the mortgage interest rate even lower than it is. They want to see the mortgage interest rate in the neighborhood of two point nine percent. They want people to just go, screw it, I'm buying a house. There's no reason I shouldn't buy a house now. They want everybody that can buy a house to buy a house. They want everybody that can move up in house, that somehow can get rid of what they have and get a bigger house, to do it. They want it to be so cheap to buy a house, that even if you look at your house and go, if I sell my house now, I'll lose $10,000. But if I buy this house over here that costs more than my house, if I have any cash in reserves whatsoever I can do it with, I can buy a house that was selling yesterday for a half a million dollars for $210,000, and I can afford it. Screw it, I'll lose the ten Because my payments are going to be so low because of this dead interest rate. They're trying to make that happen. When that happens, the money starts to multiply. It'll probably work on some level. Not to the level that they want it to. But as inflation and other commodities catches up, this is the false recovery. This is the, this is the real catalyst for it. All prices are going to go up around the board. If unemployment can dip as much as 1%, that will be the chain reaction, putting all these things together. When it happens, when it happens, don't get caught up when they start the band. Be prepared with an exit strategy. When you see that huge ramp, and everybody says it's all over now, it's all better now, be ready. It's coming. This is what's going to create it. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. So this next question is totally different. It goes a completely different way, but it's also money-based. But again, I do the questions you guys send in. And this is kind of a financial theme show so far today. We'll, we'll get off that in a second, but for now it is. Um, guy says, uh, thank you for the show, but he wants me to do something on self-directed IRAs, specifically holding precious metals or land in your IRA, and specifically holding uh, you know, physical gold or physical silver in your IRA. And uh, doing that in a way that makes sense for your, your long-term financial security. Let me say, I'm not a big fan of holding gold or silver in an IRA um, physically. It, it just doesn't make as much sense to me, and here's why. The main reason I hold physical metal is it's anonymous and portable and convertible. So I can go anywhere I want and convert... Uh, gold or silver into the currency of the nation in question. I can do it if they change the currency here in our nation. It is the most portable and anonymous and unregulated form of wealth left known to man. And even with new tax reporting requirements and all, there's always a way to move metal covertly, quietly, anonymously. And if there isn't, well, you can still do it better than anything else out there. The minute I put it into an IRA... It becomes re completely reported, totally known about, and heavily regulated. 
So I've taken the least regulated form of wealth I can own and turned it into one of the most fundamentally regulated. So that's why I'm not a big fan of them. If you're going to hold gold and silver in an IRA, I think it's easier to hold like ETFs or, or mine stocks or, or things like that. Exchange traded fund, by the way, is like it's paper gold or paper silver. So that's just my opinion there. Real estate, I've never been a big fan of, but this guy has a great idea I wanted to share with you. This guy's name is Roger, by the way. So what Roger said is, and this is why I didn't like real estate IRAs, but now I'm kind of moving toward it. If I want to buy land or I want to buy property, I want to buy a house, I want to buy anything inside an IRA, I can't live there. I can't use it. It has to be an income property or an equity play. So an income property is I find this little house with a couple acres of land, I go buy it, I can't actually use it for anything. I tenant it with, with people and I rent it. And the cat and the rental income can't go to me, has to go into my IRA. And then the appreciated value of the property, if I ever sell the property off, the money from that gain goes into the IRA. Now if I do a Roth, uh, I pay taxes on it even though I never touch the money. But I can use the ta I can use the money to pay the taxes. Or I can do a conventional and then I only pay taxes on withdrawal. Right, so eh, it's okay, but my problem was okay. Now I have this piece of property, and I really can't get I've again. I've turned money into higher regulated money, but he had a great idea. Some I never thought of. What if I use my big old chunk of change in my 401k that I roll into an IRA, and I go out and right now there's a piece of land for sale, and it's got a couple three acres on it. Next to the, you know bordering that land is another piece of land for sale. Maybe it's got a hundred acres. Now I can't get financing to buy the hundred acres. And I don't have enough money to buy the 100 acres. But I get this great big chunk of change in my retirement account. So I use my retirement account and I buy the land and I just hold it. I can't use it, can't build on it, unless I'm going to build on it as a project that's going to you be rented or tenanted or something like that. I can't use it. But it is there and it's my land and it just sits there and it buffers me from other land. I would also say if you go walking around and hunting and fishing on that land, Who's going to stop you? Interesting idea. And then I hold that land till retirement age. And I can either at that point take the land as, as my own. Or I can sell the land and take the profit as my own. Interesting idea. Very creative way to make something that's, that's uh, not quite what you want it to be into something you want it to be. Now, could you get in trouble for my little idea? It hit, you know, Actually, Roger's idea and my modification of it. You know, if I own the adjacent piece of property and I'm using that land for recreational purposes, is that a viol? It might be a violation of the spirit of the law, but how how would that be enforced? Will you walked on that property? Well, my IRA doesn't post that property, or my IRA allows people to use that property. Now, do you have to open it to the public? I don't know. I mean, one of you guys that's kind of an expert in this would have to tell me: Is there a hole in this? But if nothing else. Basically, I can buy that land with the IRA, and I can ensure that no one's going to build anything on it. So my little two-acre parcel can be buffered by land around me if I can find that. I could go into a place that's selling off land in lots, you know, uh, five-acre lots, home site lots, something like I have in Arkansas. I'd say, okay, here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to buy ten lots. I want to buy a double lot for my house, and I want to build my house. I'm going to do that with bank financing. And then I'm going to buy the other eight lots, I want them all adjacent, all surrounding. I'm going to buy them in my IRA. And I'm going to hold them for the equity play. That's the legal definition of what I'm doing. But I'm creating land buffer. That is cool. And if you have a, if you, that might be a way for people to get large pieces of property and, and really do. Now, here's the problem. You are going to create a point where you're going to have to exit. There's a point with IRAs where they have to be liquidated and paid out. And you're going to create a tax consequence if you keep the land. The land's going to have an appraised value, and you're going to owe tax against it. So to do that IRA properly, you're going to have to keep enough cash in it and appreciate the cash in some other means so that you can pay the taxes on it. Or you're going to have to take the land out, sell a portion of it, and use that. You see what I mean? There's going to be a got you in here somewhere. But it's a very interesting idea. Good one. Let's go ahead and take something totally different, no money involved at all. Uh, we talk a lot about homesteading and things like that, hunting, fishing, outdoors, and one of the great companions you can have for that type of environment is a good family dog or multiple family dogs. 
And uh, that leads to puppies, and puppies lead to problems. So I got a simple question with a simple answer. Arlene says, Hi, Jack. I was wondering what you do to get puppies out of their chewing habit. Thanks, Arlene. Um, best way I've found to do it is a product called Bitter Apple. You can buy at any dog store, like you know Petco, PetSmart. Uh, a lot of times the big box stores in the pet section, but definitely at the specialty pet stores, uh, the big box specialty pet stores and the small stores usually always have this. Again, Bitter Apple. This stuff tastes terrible. Whatever the dog chews, spray it on there. Um, I've never seen it stain anything. Check that with a, like, if it's a couch, spray the back of it, make sure it's going to be okay. But wherever the dog is chewing, spray it. And that'll pretty much take care of it. When you have dogs that like to chew on your fingers and your hands, and it's cute when they're puppies, they're sharp little puppy teeth, but it doesn't really hurt, you don't want dogs when they're full grown, like some dogs that grow 100 pounds or more, thinking it's cool to chew on hands. Especially if they're going to be socialized with other people that may not be familiar with what they're doing, jerk back and hurt themselves. So the best way I've found to get a dog to stop chewing on your hand, every time he grabs your hand, stick it in. It's gross, but it works. Right down the throat till they get a gag reflex. Every stinking time. Do that. It usually takes a couple days with a pup. And to where they just get, well, that's not a pleasant experience, so I'm not going to do that anymore. In training dogs in any situation, the best thing you can do is not give them the opportunity to fail. That's the best way to train a dog. So if I want to train a dog to not pee in the house, then what I need to do is create an environment where it's almost impossible for him to pee in the house. The dog goes out, he doesn't come in, even if he's a puppy, I watch him until he goes to the bathroom. He goes to the bathroom, now he can come in the house. He can be in the house for maybe an hour before he goes into his crate. He's not going to want to pee in his crate. So he goes into his crate, he starts to learn bladder control. As soon as he comes out of his crate, he's outside. He doesn't come in until he pees. See, the dog never gets a chance to pee in the house. So all of a sudden, peeing in the house is just a far, I don't do that, that's not what I do. I, I pee out there in the grass. I poop out there. So that's, that's the best way, anything you're trying to do with a dog... There's your best way to do it. Uh, next question. This comes from Brian, uh, Dark Winter on the forum, who sends me great stuff. And he says, I was reading an article from R. Ohio, volume 89, uh, issue to, issue to page 23, produced by the Ohio Farm Bureau. He's talking about distribution chain and how many things there are to go wrong, uh, with a different vantage point on it. It says, the economics of Ohio agriculture. Where does your food dollar go? On average, farmers receive only 19 cents out of every retail dollar spent on food that is eaten away at home or away from home. In comparison, in 1980, farmers received 31 cents out of every dollar spent on food in America. So, all this stuff about genetically modified crops, I don't want to go into it deeply, but higher yields, the higher yield has been eaten up. In 1980, farmers sold... $100 worth of a product at wholesale, he made $31. Today, he sells $100 at wholesale, he makes $19. And you scale it just up and down any way you want from there. But here's the interesting thing. They give a breakdown of where the money goes. So we know if they only get $0.19, cents, $0.81 cents goes to somewhere, someone else. Where does the $0.81 cents go? $0.38, cents, 38 .5 cents goes to off-farm labor. So that's the guy that drives the truck, the people at the sorting facility, the guy that stocks the shelf in the store. All the labor that goes into getting that food to a place where you can walk in and buy it, 38 cents. Four cents goes to transportation. So that's the cost of the fuel uh, of getting it to where it needs to go, the logistics involved with that. 3.5 cents goes to energy. To me, energy and transportation seem to overlap, but I'm going to say that energy here must mean things like lighting and cooling and things like that. The, 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 the transportation energy cost is in that four cents. Four and a half cents goes to profits, whatever that means. I guess that's, uh, it says actually profit space F, S. I don't know what that means. I guess that means somebody else's profits. Uh, four cents goes to advertising. Four and a half cents goes to rental costs. Two and a half cents goes to interest. One and a half cents goes to repairs. That's probably on the farmer there. Three cents goes to other costs. Eight cents goes to packaging. 3.5 cents goes to depreciation. That's money lost by devaluation of, of things during transit. Uh, and 3.5 cents goes to business taxes. So, Brian says, I bring this to your attention for two reasons. One, check out how large the system of food delivery is, for Ohio at least. You talk about a breakdown of systems of support. This really puts it in perspective for me. So, everywhere there's a cost, 
There's a cost center in the, in the whole system. There's a potential for failure. Some more catastrophic than others. But that is a basic understanding there. Two, if we buy direct from farmers, we know who produce our food. We should be able to buy at a substantial discount over retail. Even taking into account the power of food distribution system, we should be able to save by going direct. Absolutely. Because here's my proposition to the farmer. Look, you make 19 cents on a dollar. Let me give you 50 cents on the dollar. And let me tell every friend I have that needs what you're growing to come over here and give you 50 cents on the dollar of what we're paying in the grocery store. He's making a lot more money on every unit sold. Hell, why don't we give him 75 cents on the dollar? We'll still, we'll still spend uh, 25 cents less. Why don't we give him 90 cents on the dollar? How about that? How about we go to our farmers and say, Hey, farmers, you know what? If you'll sell directly to me, I'll give you 90 cents on the dollar. Whatever this sells for in the store, I'll buy it fresh and direct from you, and I'll give you 90 cents versus what the store's paying. Hell, why don't we give him 100%? Just make a point. Aren't you still better off? Isn't the farmer still better off? I do think we should buy at a discount, honestly. I don't think we should give them um, an exact match. Because there is an advantage for us to save some money, too. And there's a huge advantage for them to make two or three times. Because at 19 cents, we can give them three times, a little bit more than three times what the store's paying, at 60 cents on the dollar. And when you can buy something at 60 cents on the dollar, boy, it makes sense. I have two questions now that kind of came in separately, but I want to put them uh, together. The first one comes from Jason. Jason says, I recently moved to northwest Arkansas from Houston. I'm looking for land so we can build a bug-out location, or as my wife refers to it, an organic micro-farm. I've never owned a house, always renting. We are currently renting up here in Bell Vista as rent is so cheap. I wanted to get your opinion on whether or not to buy a house or buy the bug out property, bug out location property first. I was thinking we can continue renting since it's so cheap now and find, finance 80 acres or so to put a home on. The bug out location would be our first home buy and maybe could get first time homeowner details with buying it. That way when stuff goes south in America, we can leave the rent home easily and go to our bug out location home. What are your thoughts? Now, I want to read a very similar question that came in very close in time to this one and kind of answer both of them at the same time. And you'll see why I'm combining these questions uh, when I do. Uh, this comes from Derek. Uh, Jack, thought that, uh, though all the advice I've heard you give over the years, through all the advice I've heard you give over the past year or so, I come, I come to continually respect your opinion a lot. So I'll query this upon you. Should I get a house first or land? I've just been in a conversation with my wife and she wants to purchase land and a house separated probably by uh, about one to three years. She's giving me my choice as which comes first. Uh, a real choice, not a woman trap choice. <laughs> we live in central Missouri and are currently renting a house for 550 a month. We have about 60 k in student loan debt, but no other debt. She was moderately dumb with loans when I and I was completely retarded. I wondered how you were going to get out of saying your wife was moderately dumb. By saying you were completely retarded, that probably did it. We make about 50000 a year combined and will soon be making fifty five. We have a choice of getting a house in or around Jefferson City before 50, for fifty to eighty k, or getting five acres of unrestricted land by Lake of the Ozarks one hour drive away for $9,500 with a spring. Emotionally, I want the land first, but financially, it looks like the house should come first. Do you have any advice for me? Okay, let's look at a couple of things we have to take into account. Assuming that both of you guys have relatively good credit... And you can get a mortgage. Mortgaging to buy land is far different than mortgaging to buy a house. On some land transactions, you may have to come up with $50,000 to buy $100,000 worth of land. So we got one guy looking at 80 acres. He might be looking at that kind of investment. We got another guy here. He's looking at five acres, $9,500. Bucks. Um, you could probably get owner financing at $9,500. You can definitely save up five grand, go to a bank and say, I want 4500 bucks. If you have credit worth anything, they'll give you a personal loan for 4500 bucks. So buying the land is pretty easy to do. I'll also say the five acres for the guy in the Ozarks at 9500 bucks. If you go buy a house, and let's say you have a house payment of $800, first year, your house payment is $7,200. Two to three months into your second year, your house payment is so much that you would have paid for the land. Now, you're still paying the rent, so now we're down to maybe 300 bucks difference, so uh, it takes longer to do that math off, but it still works out the same way eventually if you eventually move out there. Now, 
what is your, you know, here's what I have to say to everybody, though, in the same question. You buy land somewhere, you want to put a house on it eventually, fine. Is it reasonable where you're looking for land for you to keep your income when you move there? Can you commute to where you work? Is it that kind of land? Or can you work from home? Is you in that kind of situation? If it's either one of those, it starts to lean toward the land. If you can't, well, then you got to live somewhere to keep your income until you figure out how to free yourself of that. So there's a lot to be done there. Um, let's talk about the debt with the one gentleman. $60,000 in student loan debt. You have a $55,000 a year income. Your debt load exceeds your annual income by $5,000. If you use half of your income, it'll take about two and a quarter years to pay off your debt. Since you don't have half your income to use... Uh, because of taxes and expenses, if you use a quarter, we're looking at five years. Right? If we use 12% of your income, we're looking at about 10 years to get rid of your student loan debt. I think you need to look at that debt really hard. And you need to see, is there any way you can increase your income short term, even by $1,000 a month? Even if it's delivering pizzas. And I think your focus needs to be to get rid of that student loan debt before you do anything. If you're going to do anything during that period of time, it might make... I Actually, I would tell you, you could do either one. The, the, the guy with the five acres for $9,500. $9,500 for land, you'll own the land. Something no one will ever be able to take away from you. Or you buy the house. It's going to be up to you. Um, I don't know the real estate market in Jefferson City. I don't know how safe your money is invested in real estate there right now. Um, it sounds like it's come down a lot and in the South has been a little bit insulated from this real estate nightmare that everybody else has had. But I wouldn't do either one, to be honest with you right now. I really wouldn't. Unless you can buy, if you can buy a house and your cost for the house only increases your, you know, your total expenses, taxes, insurance, electricity, all the stuff that goes with home ownership by $300 or less, you might want to go ahead and buy the house. By the time you get the tax savings off it for the first couple of years, but dude, you got you got debt to pay. The guy with the 80 acres doesn't sound to me like you can afford 80 acres right now. It doesn't sound. I mean, maybe if you're looking for a smaller piece of land. So in the end, this is a question we always have to answer for ourselves. What do we do first? But we do have to take into account that I can go out even with crappy credit and a nice house that appraises for two hundred thousand. If I can come up with, you know, 40 grand, I'll get a loan. Nice piece of land that appraises for 200 grand, I have 40 grand. Right now, if I don't have really grade A credit, and even with that, I might get laughed at. That's the big, that's a big difference right there. So, a lot of times what makes sense is to find a more moderate sized piece of land with a house on it as a bug out location. That's what we did. That's how we had the financing on it with only 10% down. I don't like debt. If you're going to have debt, it should be on real property. So one place I'm okay with it. A little bit okay with car loans, but not really. But, dude, this, this, this $60,000 of student loan debt really bothers me with your income ratio right now. And taking on more debt, man, I I don't know what to say. Now, $9,500 bucks for um, five acres, that's great. And if you can commute to work or whatever, maybe you can make that work. But in the end, this is a question we all, again, have to answer for ourselves. All I can do is kind of give you some high points to think through. I don't feel like I did the best job on that one, but I I did the best I could for you with it. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting one. Hey, Jack, a uh, longtime listener and MSB member. I appreciate everything you and your wife do. Thanks again. My question is a different take on Tito Walkie, which is the end of the world as we know it, for those who don't know. How could we grow or even profit during such a scenario? I was wondering if it's possible to position oneself so that when things melt down in society, we could come out on top. I think that time is rapidly approaching faster than most of us realize, but hopefully I'm wrong because I'm still working on my preps. All the best, Michael. Um, here's the thing. I can't tell you, well, put all your money into gold, and then when the world collapses, you'll be a millionaire. I can't tell you, go out and buy a farm, and then when the world collapses, you'll be able to be a millionaire. I can't tell you that if you invest in ammunition, you'll be able to sell it all into the war zone that America will become, and you'll be a millionaire. What I can tell you is this. The people 
that profit from change are the people prepared for change. Not all change is directly negative, not all is directly positive. When we talk about the end of the world as we know it, we're really not talking about whatever Hollywood has dreamed up to tell us that that's going to look like. We're not talking about fan fiction. We're not talking about a book that talks about the electrical grid failing. We're not talking about peak oil. We're talking about something we cannot completely articulate. And even if any of those things happen, we can't know what it's going to look like. Here's what we can know. Every day, we have five major things that we have to depend on. And if we don't have them, our life can go from miserable to non-existent. Those are food, water, shelter, energy, and security. So the best way to be prepared for a downturn and to become out, come out the other side profitable for it is to make sure that whatever advantage shows up in front of us when we see, when we go, ah, oh, this is it. Okay, now I, because we don't know what it's going to be. You just don't know. You could turn around tomorrow and the advantage, the, the thing might be that somebody at Exxon clubbed a baby seal and got caught doing it. And Exxon stock tumbles 50% in five minutes because it gets sensationalized. And everybody goes, wow, that's, and then everybody goes, this, this, like, that's dumb. I mean, this is going to go. This is a public relations incident. Well, the only way you can take advantage of that is if you have money available to buy Exxon stock at a 50% discount. Or any stock. I'm just making an example here. I'm being silly with the Baby Seal Club. You don't know what it's going to be. It could be a thumb and a Coca-Cola. It actually happened at one time. And it was back in like the early 80s, and the stocks just tumbled. And anybody would have a brain bought, the, bought it like crazy. It could be anything. It could be... You look at a society that's in a rebuilding stage and they need a certain skill set. Even if you don't have it, you're the person that can go out and fight. See, you don't know what it's going to be. But what you do know is the only way you're going to be able to sit back in that environment and look at things calmly, coolly, collectively, and be part of the solution, therefore profit, is if your needs are taken care of. If you can provide yourself basic security, food, water, energy, shelter... If that is taken care of, then you can find the opportunities as they present themselves. If even one of those is not sufficiently taken care of, all your time, energy, and resources are going to go to backfilling that. So here's a perfect example of not being prepared. In 2008, I and a few other people said, The biggest stock market crash in the history of the United States is about to happen. Get your money out of the stock market. If you did that, a few months later, you got a great buying opportunity. And a few months after that, you got a huge buying opportunity. There was a place to start going at. This is stupid. $7,200 for the Dow. This is dumb. I'm going to buy some of these stocks. The ones that are still actually making money that have been punished anyway. That are outside of the sectors that really had all the damage. That even if they only go back up halfway, it's a huge gain. And now we're sitting here looking at a stock market trading at over 11000 Why didn't America get to take advantage of that? Why, did, why didn't you make a ton of money on that? Most likely because all your money was sitting in 401ks and IRAs. And some financial advisory clown told you, stay in it for the long haul. And when somebody like me said, dude, get out. He just said, no, you're young. Don't worry about it. It'll all come back even if it goes down. You lost the opportunity for gain. Because all you could do is sit there and look at this stock market at 7000 go into 8000 go into 9000 And all you could do is just throw the little bit of money, your 5%, your 10%, just throw it at it all the way back up and hope to God it kept going up with a person that liquidated the cash went, you know what, now is the time to look at the best stocks out there, the best funds out there, the best opportunities out there, and to purchase them, not necessarily at the bottom, but off of their, off of their highest points, knowing that they'd hit bottom and were rebounding. Or at least having the reasonable assumption, and to be able to say, you know what, I took my profits, I'm going to take 25% of what I've saved for myself, and I'm going to go back in. And I'm even going to reserve 75% in case I'm wrong. You had options because you were prepared. Tito Walkie's same thing. Exact same thing. This is why we store food. Okay, if, if the whole world falls apart in whatever way that is, 
whether it's for me personally or for the nation as a whole or for the world as a whole, if I'm going to eat every night, if I'm going to be warm in my bed, if my kids are going to be fed, if I'm going to be able to at least turn on the lights and listen to the TV, fire up the computer and search for a job if it's because I've lost a job, or stay in touch with people around me if there's something dangerous, big dangerous going on, like a pandemic, if I have these basics taken care of, now I can look at the entire situation and go, I have resources. How can I utilize these resources for the best uh, best use for my family? So you have to be prepared. That means you have to pay attention. That's what that means. And I'm not a financial genius, folks. My call of the stock market was not great. I had a lot of financial people, especially advisors, that got mad at me because I call them clowns. And not all of them are, but most of them are. Email me and tell me how wrong I was about timing the market. And I said, what does your portfolio look like compared to mine? And you do know more than me, and you are smarter than me. But not on this one, because you're brainwashed into a delusional state that the entire system has been set up to sell you on. And this is the problem. This is why I'm relating it to finance. We're talking about finance today anyway. It's a great recent example. But it's brainwashing that's permeated all of society. This is why your people that you talk to about prepping think you're nuts. Because they've been brainwashed into the concept of everything will just work itself out. Society will just fix things. We'll have good times, we'll have bad times, but in the end, everything always goes up. Everything always goes up. Stock market over 10 years always outperforms any other investment. Really? How about the last 10 years? How's that working out? How about the last 12 years? Oh, well, that's an anomaly. That's an anomaly that screwed up a lot of people's retirements. Now, isn't it? You know, and it's everything else they think that way about. The job market's down. It'll recover. Sooner or later, it has to recover. It'll be all right. If I didn't lose my job, I don't really care. But it's so short-sighted because your job could be next. And there's so many people out there that haven't lost jobs that are still living exactly the same way they were three years ago. You probably know some of them. So you want to be prepared to make the best use out out of a collapse. Just be prepared to make the best use out of any change. And do that by focusing on the fundamental reality that there are certain things you need in your life. You provide for your needs first, you provide for your dreams second, and you provide for your wants third. Where we're in a society today where we provide for our wants first, our dreams second, and our needs third. We're completely backwards. And people say, why provide for your dreams before your wants? Because your dreams are the wants you really want. What I mean by that is, if I want a Dodge Challenger, nice fully loaded Dodge Challenger, but my dream is to live up on the mountain in Arkansas, provide for my dream first. And son of a gun, I may not have a Dodge Challenger, but I'll get to my dream way ahead of that. I'll provide for my needs first. And we say, well, how do people not provide for their needs first? They do and they don't. It gets bifurcated. Here's what I mean. They provide for their daily and weekly needs first because they have no choice because of our economy. You pay your rent, you pay your electric bill, you buy your food. But they don't put one bit of, of effort into providing for those needs beyond next week or next month in the case of mortgage or rent. Pay the mortgage this month, screw it. I don't have to worry about it till next month. Now I take all the rest of the money and I focus on my wants first and my dreams second. Right? Now I might pay myself first like my advisory clown told me with an automatic uh, payment of 10% into my retirement. But that's not really what, what, what we're doing because that's just money that goes over there. Right? I'm talking about all the assets that you have left. People go out and they buy Chinese made plastic crap first and then they say, wouldn't it be nice if someday I could? I'm telling you, provide for your needs first, your dreams second, your wants third. Change your paradigm. You'll be ready for anything. Last question, and the easy one um, that has nothing to do with money for just to make it kind of end on a positive note. Jack, are pine needles useful as mulch or ground cover to block weeds? The spring will be my first garden, and I'm looking for ways to mulch to keep weeds out without spending money on chemicals. I know pine needles have a resin. I'm not sure that it will be if it will be toxic to my plants. Thanks, Adam. Um, 
Pine needles, generally speaking, are completely safe for mulch. The drier, the better. Uh, that'll dry out a lot of the uh, of the, the sap that's in them. Uh, so they're, they're more convenient to handle that way. So nice, dry pine needles that have been laying on the ground for a while that when you pick them up, they crumble, are the best stuff. Long pine needles are better. If you have like the big white pines and all where it's almost like straw, that's the best stuff in the world for mulch. That stuff stays forever. It completely blocks weeds. It works great. The big thing that a lot of people worry about with pine needles is that they're acidic. And that they'll leach acid into the soil. And they will a little bit, but not enough to drastically alter the pH of your soil. If you're concerned about it, take a pH reading of your soil. Go get a little pH soil test kit from Home Depot or Lowe's. Get your soil pH reading. If it's too low or too high, you know, adjust it. Do that before you mulch it. It's not hard. And a lot of people are intimidated by it. They never do it. But it's putting a little bit of dirt and some water into a tube, adding a little bit of chemicals, shaking it up, and looking at the color. That's what you're, that's what people that don't want to do it, that's what you're intimidated by. Dirt in a tube with water, shake it up and look at a color. That's the whole thing. There's no more to it than that. So go ahead and get the pH level. Adjusting your pH is, is adding an amendment. Sprinkling some stuff on the ground and raking it in. Either to go up or down. I won't get into anything, you know, what to use to do that with today because you can go to the store and ask them and they'll tell you. That's the whole thing. I'll also tell you this. If your soil has a pH of anywhere between about 6.5 to 7.5, don't even worry about it. That little zone there, there, you know, there's optimum growing pHs, but if you have 6.5 to 7.5, unless you're growing something specialized, like maybe blueberries where you want to go a little bit toward the acidic level, don't even worry about it. Just go on with your life. If you don't like the results you're seeing with any of your plants, soil pH is one place to check. Pull your mulch back and check your pH levels. If it's a bit high, switch to a more neutral mulch. Or add something that is more neutralizing to your soil, an amendment. But odds are it's not going to be pine straw. I've never really seen it be a problem. I will tell you that it stays put like crazy, and it lasts a long time. And uh, it's really great as a mulch for things like bushes and shrubs and things like that that are more landscape-oriented. Uh, than, than the garden. The garden it's fine for, but I don't like it as much as I like to use uh, shredded wood and leaf mulch because that stuff tends to break down better and give more organic matter to my soil and is more neutral. Using a combination, though, of pine needles, pine wood, hardwood, softwood, um, a huge combination, though, I, that's my preference. If you were saying, I want to go long-term with mulching and gardening, I've got a lot of land, I've got a lot of trees, and I've got a lot of stuff to pull from, what should I do? Go out and buy a good chipper shredder, one of the best investments you can make, and use that diversity, because if you think about the forest floor, that's what the forest floor is made of. It's diverse. It's, if nothing grows where pine needles fall, there wouldn't be anything growing in our forests or at our forest edges. And they're the most productive ecosystems in the world. But it's like anything else. I don't like too much of any one thing. People say comfrey can be poisonous. Well, uh, if you eat 400 pounds of it a day, every day of your life, you can have toxicity from comfrey. If comfrey is part of a large, diverse diet, it can actually be beneficial in spite of what the government tells you about it today. The sensationalism. You know what it was? Some some health nuts went out and made comfrey out to be something, this, this wonder plant, and ate it in excess. You know those little white mushrooms you get at the grocery store? Those are toxic. There's a poison in there. You can eat a little cup full of those every day of your life and never have a problem. But if you lived on them, if you tried to live on them, eventually you're going to build up a toxicity. There's toxins in everything. There's stress... Uh, creators in everything and we need them in our lives and so do ecosystems and plants quick story to finish up with there was a project called the biosphere ages ago 20 25 years ago they built this huge dome and they put all this beautiful stuff and these people lived in it and you know it was like a social experiment and you know they made a lot to do about how the people got along but one of the things people never heard about really unless you research this thing is they had these trees that grew in the biodome and they grew so straight and so fast and so tall and so beautiful. And they seemed like the greatest trees in the world. And then they fell over and died. They just cracked under their own weight. And people wondered why. There was no wind. There was no stress. And our trees, as the wind blows and they flex, it's almost like developing the muscles in your arm. And when we remove that stress, the trees fell down. So what we think is detrimental is actually 
integral to success. That's about our society too, folks. Let me close with that thought. We are trying to build a stress fee. This is the libertarian socialist thing we started out with. We're trying to build a society where everybody has no stress in their life. Nobody has to work. Nobody has to do anything. Just, just be. Sounds like a utopia. It would be a hell. We need stress. We don't need stress that gives us cardi cardiac arrest at 41 like my buddy. We don't need excessive stress. But we need challenges. We need to be intellectually and physically challenged in our lives. So do our gardens. So do our families. So do our friends. So do the animals that we work with. If I, I have a giant German Shepherd. If I don't take him out every day and give him tasks, work him, he becomes you know, absolutely unbelievably annoyed. He has to have that. We all need that. Don't run from stress. Don't fear stress. Make it acceptable. And make it part of building that better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to build that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.